Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shi. I will be an incoming freshman next year at UCLA and also co-host this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. In addition to being co-host of this podcast, I'm an MSNBC legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience during the Watergate trial as the only woman on the team and have held a number of federal positions as well as state and local government positions. Very proud to be here today. Um, So we hope all of our listeners had a safe, healthy, and happy Thanksgiving. Um, We are delighted to be back in our home studios to record a very special episode with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, who previously served as a United States attorney, as well as the Attorney General of Rhode Island. Um, His questioning of now Justice Amy Coney Barrett really impressed Jill and me so much that we knew that we wanted to have him on our um, podcast today. We're very excited to talk to you today and um, welcome you to the show. Thank well, thank you. you. I'm excited here. to be here. And Jill, your experience going back to the um, Watergate hearings um, is so impressive. I'm really honored to be with you. And Victor, thank you for including me on Intergenerational Podcast. This is great. Of course. So, you know, we've talked a lot about this um, issue on our podcast about the hypocrisy of the power grab by Republicans and rushing to confirm Amy Coney Barrett weeks before the election um, after refusing a hearing for uh, Judge Merrick Garland, who was President Obama's nominee eight months before the election, and then also what her confirmation of the Supreme Court means for our rights today and for future generations. But um, one issue that we haven't spent as much time on um, that we plan on exploring with you today, Senator, is one that you stressed a lot during the Barrett confirmation hearing, which is just the growing power of different legal organizations and funders in pushing through these conservative justices and judges who are more likely to restrict voter rights, um, oppose a woman's right to choose, deny access to health care, undo the right of same-sex couples to marry, and many more issues that uh, deeply impact so many lives. For those of you who tuned into the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, I'm sure you remember Senator Whitehouse's phenomenal presentation exposing the scheme behind the rapid nomination and confirmation of increasingly radical conservative judges and justices. Uh, Senator, your presentation offered so many valuable insights uh, that I want to start with a clip of your remarks. What's behind us is now 80 cases, Mr. Chairman, 80 cases under Chief Justice Roberts that have these characteristics. One, they were decided five to four by a bare majority. Two, the five to four majority was partisan in the sense that not one Democratic appointee joined the five. I refer to that group as the Roberts Five. It changes a little bit, as with Justice Scalia's death, for instance. But there's been a steady Roberts Five that has delivered now 80 of these decisions. And the last characteristic of them is that there is an identifiable Republican donor interest in those cases. And in every single case, that donor interest won. It was an 80 to zero, five to four partisan route, ransacking. 
mentioned uh, donor interests that prevailed in every five to four decision. And in another part of your presentation, you link those decisions to dark money. Um, hence, my Jill's pin today has to do with money. Um, let's start by looking at what you identify as dark money funding um, through identity scrubbing organizations like Donors Trust and the Bradley Foundation. They use the money that they get from secret sources to promote the selection of conservative judges who will reach decisions that support the funders own special interests, as well as to uh, filing cases uh, to get the decisions that they want and to fund support for amicus briefs in all those cases. You mentioned specifically the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau case as an example of this funding and pointed out that 11 amicus briefs, uh, that is briefs that are filed by non-parties to a case, were funded by Donors Trust and eight were funded by the Bradley Foundation. So that leads me to the question of who these organizations are and maybe you can also talk about what impact they're having on the cases the Supreme Court agrees to hear, and more importantly, on how the court decides those cases once they actually hear arguments. Yeah, gladly. Um, Victor described the flagrant hypocrisy of the switcheroo <laughs> of the Republicans on the question of confirming a Supreme Court nominee in the run-up to an election. And um, I think just as a matter of political um, experience, that when you see flagrant hypocrisy in broad daylight, you should look for power in the shadows nearby. And where you see that power manifesting itself is through organizations like the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network, through a whole flotilla of groups that fund these and present these amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, and behind them, you see big anonymous donations. Um, and because they're anonymous, we don't know what's going on, but one donor gave $17 million to the Judicial Crisis Network to fund the public relations and TV advertisement campaign for Justice Kavanaugh during his troubled nomination. There had been $17 million in two chunks uh, from a single donor um, during the Garland and Gorsuch saga. And there was another $15 million from a single donor during the Barrett confirmation. Because it's anonymous, we don't know who that donor or those donors were, but there's no reason to discount that it could be one single donor behind all of those contributions, which meant that one donor spent about $55 million to influence the composition of the United States Supreme Court. And when you've spent that much money to influence the composition of the Supreme Court, all of us ought to know who you are and what business you have got before the court. And that's where you begin to peel back the onion and see these 85 to four decisions um, that the court has rolled up in favor of, guess what, big Republican donor interests. So I want to ask you a little bit more about the Judicial Crisis Network, Donors Trust, and Bradley Foundation. But what you said makes me want to stop first and ask, how is it possible that we've gotten back to this era of such dark money 
of non-disclosure, non-transparency. Um, I, I remember back in the Watergate era, after Watergate ended, there was a lot of legislation passed, which led to uh, being undone, unfortunately, by the Supreme Court and Citizens United. But one of the major reasons for the Watergate case was how much secret cash was on hand and available to the campaign. They would have never spent money if they had had to account for it in the way that we had to after the post-Watergate legislation. So how have we gotten back to this? What can we do about that? We've gotten back to it because of the thirst for power by special interests and because some of the traditional safeguards to protect our democracy have fallen. The worst part was Citizens United when one of those five to four partisan decisions, five Republican justices on the Supreme Court, uh, decided that you could spend unlimited money in elections. Well, it took about one nanosecond for the big special interests who were in a position to spend unlimited amounts of money in elections and had the motive to do so, to figure out that they needed to hide that it was them. So they immediately set up a whole array of phony front groups to mask their identity. And um, we see this operation running in three spheres. I first ran across it looking at climate denial, what we call the web of denial of phony front groups and identity laundering groups that fund climate denial, pretending that climate change isn't real, all of that. And then we, when I started looking at what was going on in the courts, I started to see many of the same groups showing up with the same dark money problem. And then if you look at uh, Leader McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, he runs a, a super PAC that in this last election received over $60 million in um, anonymous donations. So it's not hard to imagine that the same group or groups could be behind all three of those enterprises. They all smell a lot like the fossil fuel industry. Um, and we need to dig in and find out what's going on. Just like Watergate, when you dig in and the truth is exposed, it's highly educational for the American public and it's strengthening and reviving for our democracy. But these big special interests don't want that and they will fight as hard as they can to keep their secrecy and their anonymity. For sure, and I mean, back during Watergate, of course, one of the big phrases was follow the money. And that yeah. was not only a, a way to find the evidence of who had paid for the break-in, but it's often true in terms of all of these other things you're mentioning. So, And in Watergate, to, you were following tens of thousands of dollars and hundreds yes. of thousands of dollars. Now we're talking about tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of dollars. So is there anything Congress can do or that the American people can do to stop this anonymous cash flowing into uh, both campaigns uh, for office, but also into the courts for amicus briefs and for judicial nominees? Yes. First of all, you can demand transparency. And one of the most effective ways to demand transparency is to go to companies that you either invest in or um, that you are a consumer of and find out if they're a member of big um, political muscle groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which thrives on enormous doses of dark money, 
and ask them why they are supporting an organization that is behaving in such a peculiar way in terms of taking in enormous anonymous contributions. If you lay a little bit of the blame on the members of the organization and on the board members particularly, I think they may be more responsive. Obviously the US Chamber of Commerce is not responsive at all. It only wants to get more uh, dark money. In Congress, what can we do? We can force disclosure through. Um, the Citizens United decision was premised that all of this unlimited money that it allowed was gonna be transparent, that you know exactly who was spending it. Of course, that was a completely erroneous predicate in the court's decision. They couldn't have been totally more wrong as proven indisputably by what's happened since. But that, since that was the premise of that decision, it clearly was not a constitutional problem. And therefore, Congress can act in that area. And we have legislation in Congress to demand disclosure of political contributions when they hit $10,000 so that you know who the real person is behind the curtain. That would be excellent. Um, and during your questioning is Amy Coney Barrett for her confirmation to the Supreme Court. Um, you made uh, clear that these organizations funded uh, amicus briefs and that they did it for multiple groups that each allegedly had its own independent separate interest because that's the only way that each of them could apply to be an amicus. Um, and they did it with no transparency as you're pointing out now. And um, so I'm, I'm just wondering what these groups are doing and what the funders of this group have um, in common. What is the reason they're doing this? Well, the Bradley Foundation is a notorious right-wing um, advocacy group. So you know what they're up to because that's, what, that's who they are, that's what they do. They're anti-labor, anti-environment, um, and uh, very much interested in protecting dark money and so forth. Um, donors Trust is a little hard to tell because Donors Trust in theory has no particular mission. It doesn't make a product, it doesn't perform a service. All it is is an identity launderer to scrub off the identity of the donor so that when the big donation gets to say, Judicial Crisis Network or the Federalist Society, it just says from donors trust and not from the Cokes or from ExxonMobil or from Marathon Petroleum or from whomever else. So they are um, in the amicus brief business and what they've done is they've tried to stack a whole bunch of briefs into the same case so that it creates the appearance of there being a chorus of support. And in the case that I used in my example, that was the case about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The 11 organizations that filed amicus briefs that were all funded through Donors Trust, none of them disclosed to the court that they'd all been funded by Donors Trust. And the eight that had been funded by the Bradley Foundation, none of them disclosed that they had been funded by the Bradley Foundation. So the court isn't getting a fair and accurate description of who's behind these amicus groups. The other parties aren't getting a fair and accurate description of who's behind these amicus groups. And the public is getting fooled as well with the pretense that there's this sort of uprising of spontaneous support when the whole thing is as orchestrated as, uh, you know, a band playing together.
everybody has their instrument and they all play their part. Yeah, I, I'm on the board of the Better Government Association, whose one of its main missions is transparency in government. And so I see the value of transparency and hope that Congress can do something so that the public as well as the court understand what the interests are behind these uh, amicus briefs. And um, I, I'm just- It's gonna wondering... be a brutal fight because <laughs> if you're a dark money group, the number one thing you wanna protect is dark money. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can see the pattern that's uh, happening here with these organizations hiding who really is the interest behind them yep. um, and funding the amicus briefs, terrible. Yeah. And we know not only that they're funding amicus briefs, donors trust and Bradley Foundation, but like you said in that presentation, that they're also funding groups like the Federal Society, which is now um, the official recommender of judicial appointments for Trump. Um, in the past, when we didn't have a president who shattered norms and institutions, um, the president would have an internal team that would come up with recommendations. Um, the president would, would review that recommendation, nominate someone, and then um, usually the American Bar Association or some neutral organization would evaluate and rate the nominee and whether they're qualified or not. But, you know, I think on the surface, a lot of us just think that the Federalist Society is another Republican group that's, you know, um, that has, you know, influence over Republican um, legal scholars. But for this process of selecting conservative judges and justices for President Trump, um, like, is this group usual? Like, can kind of help us understand the role of the Federalist Society in all of this? And I guess just how dangerous it is. Yeah, um, Victor, let's be clear first about the Federalist Society. As a group that funds conservative organizations on college and law school campuses around the country, I've got no objection to that activity. That's mm -hmm. totally appropriate activity. I may not agree with the position they're espousing, but I've got no problem with them doing it. Um, they're also kind of a traditional Washington smelly think tank, mm -hmm. but there are thousands of Washington smelly think tanks and they're no worse than others. So there's nothing particularly wrong with them being a Washington kind of think tank group. Where it gets wrong is when the process of selecting judges gets outsourced to them at the same time that they are accepting enormous dark money donations. I mean, in 2010, Donors Trust gave the Federalist Society less than a million dollars. Now they're giving them more than $5 million a year. Wow. And, um, you can only imagine what you buy for $5 million a year. Um, the idea that, the, that you put the judges who the president is gonna select through a screen that is secretly devised by private parties is completely antithetical to the notion of a fair uh, judiciary. Uh, you should not give anonymous interests who are almost certainly special interests the right to become the gatekeeper to the federal judiciary because you know what they're gonna to wanna to do. And you know that they're up to no good because they're hiding. If they were proud of their role, they'd be standing up, they'd wanna have their people at the White House. There'd be, you know, hi, I'm from Marathon Petroleum and I uh, really support this judge and we're excited to work with President Trump to get this judge through, because what? Because he's gonna rule against climate action? Um, they obviously don't want to do that for that very reason. But if it were legitimate, almost any group would be celebrating its role. So the fact that they're operating in this dark money world is a really strong indicator that something very nefarious is going on. 
Right. Yeah. And with the Biden administration coming in soon, do you, do you foresee any other organization, um, you know, perhaps something like the American Constitution Society, although it doesn't have the magnitude of funding that the Federal Society has, um, replacing them in selecting judicial nominees? Or do you think the administration will return back to, I guess, a practice of finding their own qualified candidates and vetting them through a neutral organization like the ABA? Um, and also, as Jill um was the former COO of ABA. Um, I know she would want to know that as well. I think that it is wrong to give special interests a formal secret role at the table where judicial nominees are selected. And I don't care whether that's a conservative group um, or whether that's a progressive group. I think that this should be done with a lot more daylight. And in any way that I can, I'm going to urge the Biden administration not to replicate the mischief and misbehavior that took place on the other side. In fact, rather than replicate that misbehavior, my ask to them is going to be that they do everything they can to try to expose it mm -hmm. and to try to look into what really happened and who was behind all of this. In a recent case out of West Virginia, the Supreme Court held that when a party in a case had spent enough money getting a judge elected to the court, was unfair and violated the due process clause of the constitution for that judge to rule on a matter with that party. So we need to know who the big donors are so we can find out if they've had cases in front of the Supreme Court in violation of that rule. And the idea that the public just doesn't know that everybody else is winking at each other who's in on the scheme makes it even worse. And I know that makes my generation more hopeful um, because my generation believes that, you know, we kind of get detached from politics knowing that there is so much big money and special interests involved and there isn't much of a chance for us to get involved. But I think that really helps us um, kind of take that initiative and take that step forward to fight for more transparency and exposing these not, groups. So, not to mention that as they're exposed, I think you're going to find some really interesting stories that come out of this. <laughs> you know, I think this is going to be, everybody likes a good detective story. And um, I think this is going to be a good detective story with some, some pretty serious punchlines. For sure. I mean, it's such a complicated scheme. And one of the things that you mentioned during that presentation that really, um, I guess, disturbed me the most was just the overlap of some of the connections between Donors Trust, um, the Federal Society, the Bradley Foundation, uh, the Judicial Crisis Network. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit and kind of how they overlay in terms of the senior leadership that are that's in charge of those uh, organizations? Yeah. Well, they overlay in, in a lot of different ways. I mean, for instance, the office of the Judicial Crisis Network is exactly bang next to the office of the Federalist Society in Washington, and they kind of they answer each other's doors, um, according to the Washington Post reporter who found that out. Um, they probably are getting money from the same donors, and the idea that they're not operating in concert is, I think, ludicrous. Um, when the head of the Federalist Society judicial screening mischief got blown up by the Washington Post expose, it's like when a spy gets blown and suddenly everybody knows, oh, he's not legit, and he, he's actually a, an agent. So he had to bolt from the Federalist Society to try to help clean up its reputation. And the woman who is the head honcho at the Judicial Crisis Network hopped over and took over the seat without a hiccup because they've been working together uh, all along. 
Oh. And where it gets really dangerous is that it's very likely the same funders behind those two groups who are also funding the politics of Republicans in the Senate. And that means when it comes time to put up these phony baloney judges that they've had to vote on, they're under immense pressure to vote yes, even if the judge has been deemed unqualified, as many have, because that really powerful donor base is breathing down their neck saying, this is what we want. You better vote for this clown. Hmm. Yeah. He's our clown. <laughs> wow. Um, I, this, this scheme is so complex. There's so many kind of overlapping kind of scenarios here. But is there, do you know of any other kind of Republican or Democratic group in Washington, D.C., creating such a complex organizational structure and funding for other purposes? Because we know that there are special interests in dark money involved in a lot of uh, decisions that are being made in Washington, but is there anything as complex as you're seeing right now in terms of uh, the legal world? Yeah, the other big one is the climate denial scheme. Um, the climate denial scheme began with the tobacco industry scheme to deny that tobacco was bad for you. And that ended up being blown up as fraud. I mean, literally a judgment in federal court that that tobacco industry operation was fraud. So they had to abandon that operation, but it had multiple organizations and lots of phony baloney scientists, and it had a whole like a apparatus. And that apparatus was there ready and waiting for the fossil fuel industry to come in and take over as climate change became more of an issue. And it's grown since then. But as a Stanford student, you'll appreciate there's actually a lot of academic research, including some publications uh, that have come uh, through Stanford, um, on the whole scope of this scheme, this apparatus of putting up front groups so people don't know who's behind it, uh, funding them with dark money so people don't know who's paying for it, and putting phony baloney scientists on a talk shows to try to um, out-talk the real scientists who are doing the peer-reviewed research that is actually legitimate. Wow. After that last one, by the way, has been counted at between 60 and 100 organizations. Oh my God. Depending on how you count them and some, it's like Kleenex, some get dirty enough and blown up enough that they don't use them anymore. So they dump them and stand up a new one. It's kind of a whack-a-mole thing. So it's hard to get the exact number, but it's a big number. Wow. So let's go back to uh, your questioning of Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and for me, one of the most dramatic lines um, was the following uh, that we wanted to show our viewers and let our listeners hear. There is a lot of hard to explain hypocrisy and rush taking place right now. And my experience around politics is that when you find hypocrisy in the daylight, look for power in the shadows. So that rang very true to me. Uh, again, referring back to my Watergate experience, uh, it was the lack of transparency that led to the break-in. And um, so I think it's really, really important. And I do hope that uh, Congress, once Joe Biden is inaugurated, can do something to stop the use of the secret funding that we've already talked about, this dark money. Um, and you mentioned also in that same context that the secret funding is not only used for specific things, but it's generally used for control and power purposes. Um, and it's been used to diminish our constitutional rights to civil jury, to weaken regulatory agencies, to reduce voting rights, uh, to allow political gerrymandering. Um, so 
is there something you could add on the risks of um, all of those problems that are coming from the connection between dark money and our constitutional rights? Yeah, I think the problem is that sometimes um, all of these bad elements converge. Um, so you have a court that is highly attuned to these interests. And one of the justices says that he doesn't like a particular law, a particular decision that protects public labor unions. And he announces it. So the next thing you know, dark money funded groups go out looking for the right plaintiff, a plaintiff of convenience, and they bring a case, they rush it into the Supreme Court. In this case, something unusual, you as a good lawyer would probably make you, would shake your head a bit. They went into the district court and said, we'd like to lose as quickly as possible. And then they went into the circuit court and they said, we'd like to lose as quickly as possible because they were in a race to try to get before what they thought was a friendly Supreme Court that had signaled it would rule their way on this question that people who are against labor unions really wanted to see go their way. That was a dark money funded group that did that whole litigation strategy. And then when the time for the decision came, in came this flotilla of amicus groups, again, all anonymously funded to echo and parrot the message in a kind of phony baloney chorus of agreement. And arguing before judges whose selection had been screened through those same dark money groups. That's not a good combination. That's not a good combination for the court. That's not a good combination for the country. And certainly for the labor union uh, party in that case, uh, they were in front of a real kangaroo court. So I, I wanna end our conversation with um, maybe one more question and one more clip. Um, Victor, if you could show the clip. Something is not right around the court. And dark money has a lot to do with it. Special interests have a lot to do with it. Donors trust and whoever's hiding behind donors trust has a lot to do with it. And the Bradley Foundation orchestrating its Emmy key over at the court has a lot to do with it. Is there anything that you want to add about the process of dark money and government and anything that Victor's generation can do to improve our government system uh, and increase transparency? Well, it's been said that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And every once in a while, government needs some disinfection. And sunlight is the benign way to disinfect it. It's the good, simple, clean, clear way. And we need a lot more sunlight and transparency in our government uh, right now. And I think that's probably the strongest point. You. You, unless there's some very specific reason for there to be something kept classified, um, we're almost always better off when government is transparent. And particularly when the relationship between government and the big influencers who are trying to have their way through government uh, is transparent. Because when the big influencers can pull their mischief behind the scenes, it's the public that loses pretty much every time. You've been terrific. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I am sure that everyone listening today has a much better idea about how important transparency is in government and the dangers of having groups that have secret funders uh, have on this process and why we need to know who they are.
Yeah. So thank you. Particularly for when it's a common scheme. Yes, for sure. Well, thank you so Victor, much. Thank Sandra. you very much. Of Jill, course. I'm honored to be on the show with you and uh, hope you all have wonderful Thanksgivings and I wish you, you well too. for the holiday season. Thanks so you much. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.